Well, if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be starting our series in Romans. And you know, it always amazes me how many people are participating with us. Um, those of you who come to church, those that watch online, um, the LarrySermonBlog.com, those people that are I'm getting uh, Facebook Messenger messages from and emails from um, literally all over the world. Um, one pastor in India sent us a request for his uh, son. Uh, son's name is Jeremiah, that he has been in the hospital and different things. And um, so they're, they're people, we're touching people in ways. And it's just because of the word of God. And, and the full text is on there, and I think people are using that all over the world in different ways. Little, little Abundant Life Church. Uh, praise God like that. Well, I, I should never say little, right? Amen. You know, I am... Um, I am always challenged every time I speak the word of God that God has called me and put me in this place. I, I can't believe that he would use someone like me. And, but ever since I was a, a preteen, I sensed God's call in my life. I wanted more than anything to minister the word of God. And I I recognize Jeremiah 3, right, and Jeremiah 33, and, and, and James chapter, they're all going threes, James chapter 3, not many of you should decide to be teachers, brethren, because you're going to be held to a higher standard and judged more strictly, um, and if you don't say what's true, and you don't call them on the carpet, their blood is on your hands, those are the kind of statements that uh, I, I think about every time I stand up here, so I, I don't take the this privilege that I have lightly at all and I I believe it's very imperative and important especially in the culture in which we live with the rise of the new atheists and the Sam Harris's that are out there and all this kind of nonsensical cursory reading of the Bible that we get into the Word of God and that we know what the Bible says and I want to give us a, a background here you can see these posters all over our church, there's a couple in the foyer, there's some here, and um, the designer that made it should have made the print bigger, but uh, that was me, by the way. Um, but there's three sections that we're going to look at here in Romans, the pursuit, um, the problem, the pursuit, and the promise. And these are broken down into sections of the scripture, and, and I want us to take a look at uh, some some reasons why the, the, the book of Romans, this epistle, this letter to the church in Rome, was so important and heralded by the church fathers. Uh, church father John Chrysostom in 347 to 407 uh, BC said, the whole world on one side, put the whole world on one side of the scale, and you'll see that the soul of Paul outweighs the world. Um, Augustine said, uh, 354 to 430 A.D. was the light, his life, and he said, I wish I would have seen Christ in the flesh and Paul in the pulpit. Martin Luther, of course, 1483 to 1546, Paul is, he's talking about Paul, the wisest man after Christ. Martin Luther, two little quotes here from um, him, uh, but in, uh, from uh, 1483 to fifteen. 46 again he says Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament William Tyndale if you have a Tyndale Bible or New Testament um, you know that he of course was martyred for his faith and for believe a lot of martyrs in this line of having the scripture that you hold in your hands today there's a lot of people that gave their lives to uh, write it preserve it promulgate it and get it out there but William Tyndale 1494 to 1536 says this epistle Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and almost pure gospel and also a light in a way into the whole of scripture John Calvin wrote in 1509 to 1564, he said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, he's talking about Romans, we have an open door to the most profound treasures of scripture. A more contemporary Reformation guy, R.C. Sproul, writes, no book has such powerful impact on my life as the book of Romans. And someone you may recognize today from 1949, still alive, 72 years old-ish, uh, Dr. Tony Evans, uh, wrote Romans is the constitution of the church. Uh, there's other scholars, Paul Barnett calls 
Paul, the first theologian in the early church and arguably the greatest in the history of all Christianity. In fact, if you uh, listen to any debates online about scripture or the existence of God, you'll no doubt run into people trying to make other claims about Paul and what he would say or write about the church. I want you to take some time with me this morning to kind of focus in. You know, sometimes I, 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 I just preach and preach and preach and I have illustration after illustration, but I really want to set the stage here for our series today. It's really important. The whole thing's going to be online, and I think it's important that we go in order and we learn some historicity about what's going on in Rome, uh, where Ch Paul is right now as he writes this, who Paul is, and all of those things. So you might feel like you're in school uh, for a little while. How many remember that far back? Some of you are like, okay, you might need to be reminded. Hopefully you won't throw an eraser at the teacher or fall asleep in class. That would be really bad. The main verse or the key verse that really capsulates the verses that capture the whole essence of this letter to the church in Rome is found in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he says this, and let's read it aloud together. Everybody read this with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What a powerful statement. I am unashamed of the gospel. Consider the culture that Paul was going into as he writes this. He's going into some hostile country. He's going into a place where the message of Jesus is burgeoning. The reputation of Jesus has been everywhere. Everyone's heard of him. But now these claims that Jesus is, was, and forever will be the Messiah is a proclamation that Paul is more than willing to say. Even though it could, it's going to cost him his life eventually, he is boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to salvation. What a powerful statement. So who is Paul? I like his statement in 1 Corinthians 9.16 because I feel the same way I would bust inside if I didn't say this just as Paul said it. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What a statement. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. That was his name before. His father was a Pharisee. He grew up in the Pharisee scholarly way. And, and these guys knew the Torah. They were steeped in Jewish tradition. So they knew all about the ins and outs. They knew all of the rules and how to follow them. Paul was smart, an educated guy. He stuttered, studied under the... the, um, the renowned Gamaliel, who was uh, a, a high uh, a, a teacher and uh, under uh, Jewish law, and he was a he was a Jew, and and in Paul was fluent in four three languages, possibly four: Greek, Hebrew, um, Aramaic, and possibly Latin. I mean, this guy was smart. Um, he, he, he refers to more than 100 Old Testament quotes and many summaries of Bible themes in all of his writing in the Bible. And, and, and Saul was very zealous for what he believed in. He was a Jew of Jews, right? He was the one that, that encapsulated ca everything that a good Jewish younger man should believe. And he was very zealous in his belief. He, was, um, he viewed Christians as a threat. He saw them as an attack, a direct attack on Judaism. And he was so zealous, in fact, that he petitioned the Pharisee council. He went, he said, hey guys, I want letters to go anywhere that I want. When I find these Christian people, I want to torture them, I want to imprison them, I want to tear apart their families. He was the Osama bin Laden of Pharisees, enforcing Jewish tradition by punishing those who would not agree with him. He was very zealous. He was very zealous. He, he wanted, in fact, to squish this thing out, to stomp it out. He is standing before King of Agrippa near the, the end of the book of Acts, and not long before his death. But in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, listen to what he says about himself as he is talking to the king. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, 
I cast my vote against them. This was a tradition by those in the Pharisee um, schooling, if you will, in, in the leadership. If someone was brought forth and they were accused of breaking a Jewish law, they were put to death. You cast your vote in approval afterward. So yeah, I agreed with this. This was a good thing. This is kind of like the Old West, right? You know, I have some witnesses that it was a fair shoot, you know. I was quicker on the draw. And that's kind of what happened. He said, he cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them in foreign cities. Christians in our world today are the most persecuted group for their faith in all the world. Did you know that? This year alone, it's estimated that nearly 200,000 across our world would suffer the ultimate penalty of martyrdom for believing in Jesus. We don't realize it because America is only 5% of the entire world's population. We think we're important. Christianity of the freedom that we have here in America to understand these things. There's people hiding in dungeons and caves and places and meeting in secret just to read portions of the scriptures. He also writes some things about himself in Galatians 1.13. Look at what he says in his description about himself. He says, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Philippians 3.6, he writes about himself as well. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And in 1 Corinthians 15.8, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You can see what great feeling he has, what, what great desire that he has for the Lord now. He's come out of something, he's been pulled out of a darkness, his, his religious ways, just like any other religious system in the world, he now views as dark. He now views as being lost and separated from the one true God. And Paul basically says, hey, I have found Christ and I now understand he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy concerning the Christ, the Savior. His conversion is quite dramatic. In Acts chapter 9, the first nine verses, you can read about it. We'll, we'll refer to his conversion often, I'm sure, as we're going through the book of Romans. But um, he's on the road to Damascus. He's got letters, right? And he's going to persecute the church. And, and while he's on the road to Damascus, he, he gets knocked down. He sees a blinding light, and he hears this voice. The men, the guards that were traveling with him to help him enforce rules and were his traveling companions also heard the voice but they didn't see anything, and he had this light, and, and Jesus appears to Paul in the road to Damascus. And he says, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the thorns, Paul. You, you're not going to stop this no matter what you do. It's not going to happen. And on that road to Damascus, they pick him up, and he's blinded. He can't see. And, and they take him and, into, the, into the city, and, and he is there for several days. And finally, he is, um, uh, it, God calls to Ananias uh, to come and pray for him. He receives his sight. He spent the first part of his life in comfort as a Pharisee. And now he is becoming a, a believer in Jesus. He, he makes this decision and this impact of uh, confrontation that Jesus has with him stirs his heart and changes his mind. I mean, you've all been there, right? I was in school, and, and God would confront me with things. I was a young man, and God confronted me. You remember where you were when Jesus confronted you? You remember the feelings that you felt and the, the things that came over you when you began to realize everything that I've been doing is just the opposite of where I need to be. And so Paul comes to this realization, and all of a sudden, he is gloriously set free from his bondage to Jewish religious practice ingrained in him, and he's born again into the kingdom of God. He spends his first part of his life as a Pharisee of Pharisees and a leader among the group in the synagogue as in a life of comfort, ease, and luxury. And he enjoyed dual citizenship, which allowed him incredible freedom to travel as a, as a Jew and as a Roman. And he had the world's class education. This was a guy who was a member of the prestigious group of Pharisees. And, and he was widely respected as a powerful leader who literally killed people in the name of God. He lived a wealthy life, a well-armed 
terrorist and traded it all to serve Jesus. He lost everything from his social status as well. Everybody unliked him on Facebook. <laughs> to his friends and family, he lost them and as well. His, his safety and security that he once knew, he, he gave it all up to follow Christ. Some people don't mention it, but he, he was probably married and he lost his wife maybe even to divorce because of his membership as a leader in the Pharisee party. It, they were required to be married and after his conversion, there's no mention of him being married. Uh, in fact, he's very emphatic about it. He is single, which may mean he was a widower or it may mean that his devout Jewish wife said, I'm not having anything to do with that and divorced him on his conversion. He lived most of his adult life like Jesus, a, a chaste, unmarried, and fatherless man fully devoted to ministry and its accompanying misery. Look at his descriptions of misery. I want to read more scriptures here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 4, and then we'll turn over to chapter 11. But look at some of the things he writes about. He says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, he says, and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, he says, labors and sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors, and yet we are true. And he says in verse 9, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and know we're not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, the beginning in verse 23, about his persecutions. He says, and he's boasting a little bit because he's talking about some of the other apostles, but he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And then he says, I'm talking like a crazy person. He says, I shouldn't be boasting like this. You know, it's, it, this is silly for me to do so. But he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, he was tortured more than the other apostles. And, and often near death, in verse 24, he says, five times at the hands of the Jews, I received 40 lashes less one. <coughs> five times he was beaten, 39 lashes. Verse 25 says, three times I was beaten with rods. This is a real joyful thing, right? To come to Christ. I mean, some of our brothers and sisters in foreign countries are facing these things, especially in northern Africa and the Muslim-influenced uh, countries. They're, they're facing this stuff even now. We see it in China even. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Not the common stoning of today. You know, the green cross. It wasn't getting high. He was stoned with rocks. Could you imagine staying there and letting people willfully throw rocks at you? Usually, almost imperatively, that led to death. But he says, three times I was shipwrecked. Wow! I mean, three trips on the Titanic. I mean, he, three, three times. So he was on a boat a lot. He traveled a lot, right? So, but three times he was shipwrecked. That's, I mean, I'd probably find another way to travel, you know. It's just not going to work out. Three times shipwrecked, he spent a night and a whole day adrift at sea, just floating in the water, grabbing on maybe to some, some debris. Wow. In verse 26, he says, I was on frequent journeys and in days of danger of rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Oh, wow. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea danger from false brothers in toil, hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for the churches. Boy, I understand that one. Verse 29 Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fail and I am not indignant? In other words, I understand what God has called me to, and I'm willing to do it. I'm going to face all of these things. That's who Paul is. 
So why the letter to the church in Rome? So Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities called churches. And, and he would bring answers to their faith, questions. He would bring correction or structure. And the book of Romans is one of these letters. And it's a, the most beautifully written and complete of all of the epistles that are in the New Testament. An epistle means a letter written. A letter sent to the church. And it's the longest of the epistles of all of the letters that are written in the New Testament. And that we have in the Bible, it was written late in his career. I have a little graph here to kind of show us Paul's influence on the books of the Bible. Paul, in the New Testament, wrote 13 of them. John wrote five books. Luke wrote two. Peter, two. Matthew, one. Of course, Mark. Uh, James, unknown. Hebrews is unknown. And Judah's unknown. Now, an interesting fact, of course, is Luke, as far as content, wrote the majority of the New Testament. Luke, he wrote Luke and Acts. And so because they're large books, he, he wrote the bulk of them. And I, 60%, give, this is my honest feeling, give Hebrews to Luke. Now, some people don't. People often attribute it to Paul. But I don't see Paul writing quite like that in other ways. So anyway, that's my opinion. And so don't go ahead. My, my pastor said that Paul didn't write Hebrews. He's, oh, he's falling off the rails. Well, never mind. Let's go there. So we know from Acts chapter 18 that the church in Rome had existed for a long time. A tradition, of course, in the Catholic Church says Peter was the one who established the church, but there's really no evidence that that actually happened. And, and it existed for quite some time. So the church in Rome had been established, and it was really quite a unique church because it was separated from uh, many of the Jewish traditional influences that you would find in, in everywhere else throughout the region. And, and it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish believers. In fact, uh, some write or believe that it was there was more non-Jewish believers in the church at Rome than there were Jewish believers. And, um, and so what, what happened, Emperor Claudius, uh, the Emperor Claudius came along and he expelled all of the Jews from Rome, including the Christians too, the Christian Jews. So all, all the people that were in the church in Rome that were Jewish had to leave. And they, had, they were gone for five years. And a, a big part of the reason that Paul is writing this letter is because it caused problems five years later when Claudius allowed, when they were allowed to come back, all the Jews came back into the church and the church was different. Imagine that. You know, they come back and uh, now there's arguments about how come there's no strict observance of the Sabbath by these guys? How come they're eating bacon sandwiches? Right? I mean, there's a lot of things in Jewish tradition, and now the, 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 the believers there are following Christ, and, and all of a sudden there's a, a problem. So Paul has to deal with these issues all the time. And what would that be like, right, to have those kind of changes? All of a sudden, let's say you walked into the church 20 years ago was the last time you came to church. You come to church today, and there's no hymnals in the chairs. People are singing these off-the-wall songs. I mean... Off the wall, some of them might be. We try not to use the off the wall ones, but you know what I get. You know, all of a sudden, people are dressing different. They look different. They're, remember the overheads? When I was a youth pastor, I had, to, I had to stand behind this projection machine that had a long neck on it and a lens. And for some of you young people, this was what we had to do. And it had a, a reflecting thing. Clear sheets of plastic that had the words printed, sometimes written, on them. And you had a big... A file folder here full of them and you got a song list maybe if you were lucky five minutes before the service started and you had to pick out the overheads that you hopefully put in alphabetical order so you could lay them on there and it would shine on the screen that was the first reputation of an off-the-wall song now we've got these projectors and computers and all kinds of stuff. And when you were back then, you were singing, this is the day, this is the day. Then you went, then in the 80s, this is the day that the Lord has made. Today is a day you have made. How, I mean, it's just the same words. It's just a different sound of song, right? All of a sudden, you come in, it's like going on a missions trip. I've been on missions trips where I go, you know, South America especially, and they're singing a lot of the stuff we sang in like the 90s, 
Um, and, and that's not indicative everywhere, just some of the places I've been. And, and when you go on some of the trips, and you know, we'll go on more, and hopefully you'll get to go with us wherever we go, maybe to Africa again, that'd be great. But um, they, 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 they kind of sing those songs, you know. Este es el día, este es el día, y se gozare, y se gozare, y alregare, y alregare. Yo por medio de ti, el Señor, por la sangre de Cristo, de gracia de Dios. <sighs> you all know this one. Spanish. Sing it with me. Hallelujah. <laughs> okay, got that. So Paul comes back to the church, and it's been influenced by non-Jewish people. And so he's got a work to do because they have questions now. So he deals with some dividing issues in the church. And people disagreed about how to follow Jesus, in fact. So the Romans were actually quite a mature church in terms of how Paul writes to them. He is a lot, I think, like this bunch right here. He, he's talking with them on a level about things that they understand the basics and they need some direction for their future. He's talking about circumcision. He's talking about these kind of Jewish traditions and how important they reflect Jesus, not that they should all be fulfilled to the letter of the law. So the reason Paul wrote the letter was to accomplish two big things. Number one, he wanted the church to become unified. Unity, in fact, is what he ends, Romans chapter 16, he ends with unity, and throughout the entire epistle, he's writing about being together. You know, Ephesians 4, 3 says, bear with one another in love and maintain the unity in the spirit of peace. We're supposed to be unified as a church, amen? And unity is one of the great strengths of Abundant Life Church. When you're at our fellowships or our prayer meetings, you sense that. Our prayer meetings are full of the fire of God, man. People are, we're just wanting to seek God. We hope that we do a couple of things really well every Sunday. We want to worship together. We want to hear the ministry of the word of God. And we want to pray for one another. And we're going to pray at the end of the service. We, we try to capture those important things. And, of course, we have all these other things that we are surrounded by food a lot of times. But they're fellowship, right? And then our purpose and your purpose and my purpose as believers is to be the evangelist. So those five things capture what we're about. We try to practice three of those really hard Sundays. Unity was his first one. And then practically, the second one, he wanted this church in Rome to be a staging ground for him to go into Spain. That was the goal, and we never saw the fruition of it. And so many people write, well, why did Acts chapter 28 just stop? You know, right as Paul seems to be getting going, I believe that you and I are to be Acts 29, right? We're supposed to continue the work that God has called us to do. So we have in Romans, as Paul writing his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news, right? The good news is the explanation of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and, and three big ideas throughout the book. The problem, you know, the depravity of humanity encompassed in that, of course, he deals with the grace of God, justification by faith, this big word called sanctification through the Spirit. We're going to deal with those things. And the hope of the believer, he, he just deals with that in that first section. The second one, the pursuit, Romans 9 through 11, divine sovereignty and human will. We're going to have some good thinking on it. It's going to be good stuff there. And in the future of God's people. And then, of course, the promise, Romans 12 to 15, it's got this uh, social and civil and personal things and there's some big ideas in the first four chapters and I'm excited we're going to be in these chapters in the next uh, several weeks and I think this is probably going to take us the better part of eight to ten months to get through it all of the, the entire epistle of Romans this is not something small and in the first four chapters there's some really big ideas all humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. Secondly, the rescue isn't going to happen by people who are trying to obey the Torah or any other religion, as he writes. And thirdly, rather, God's righteous character has, removed, has, has, has moved to rescue his people through Jesus' death and resurrection. And then fourth, um, so that he could create this beautiful church that looks like everybody in the world all together 
no matter where we come from. So here we go. Are you ready? Uh, that was just the introduction. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Woo, that's all right. You can say, yeah, all right. <laughs> Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul called to be an apostle. Let's hang out here just for a few minutes. Paul was considered to be an apostle, and becoming an apostle in New Testament times, as far as it defines it, is not how we might hear the word apostle in our day today. You hear it on Christian television, apostle this person or apostle that person. This isn't the way that it was described in the New Testament. Uh, it's not the characteristics, anyways, of a New Testament apostle. Besides uh, the, the word meaning one sent, that's what apostle means the original 12 are called apostles and in fact in Revelation chapter 21 it says that the, 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 the names of the foundations of the 12 foundations of the, of the future eternal kingdom are the names of have the names of the apostles inscribed on them they were the first <coughs> messengers of the life the, de the life um, the, the death and the resurrection and the soon coming uh, return of Jesus Christ and they they brought this message to the world and this type of apostle had three basic qualifications and number one they had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ that's what the New Testament definition has an apostle was a witness of the resurrected Christ and so that was that's a big one uh, secondly to have been directly chosen by the Holy Spirit and thirdly, to have seen the working of God through their life and salvation and, and even miracles. And as we look at the, at the New Testament, we, we kind of derive some of these things. We see, though, that some were adopted into this apostleship after these things were happening. In fact, Paul was one of them. Um, and Barnabas is referred to as an apostle, but he wasn't one of the original 12. Uh, Andronicus and Junius are probably... Um, identified as apostles as well. The same Greek word translated apostles used to refer to Titus in 2 Corinthians and Epaphroditus in, in Philippians chapter 2. So there's definitely room for the term apostle to refer to someone other besides the original 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. Can Jesus reveal himself to people today? Yes. Can Jesus call people to go and do things today? Yes, they can. So Paul is adopted into this apostleship by this great encounter he has on the road to Damascus and his witness of Jesus. He becomes a powerful preacher of Jesus in a world of non-Jewish people in the world called Gentiles. And he started going by his Roman name instead of Saul. Now he calls himself Paul. He traveled all throughout the Roman Empire and, and telling people about Jesus everywhere. He went to bring these brand new communities called churches and, and Jesus' followers, uh, and he went to them to nurture them and to love them, and, and he was comfortable in the synagogue, so he began to preach there and, and pretty much everywhere. So this is an amazing transformation we're catching, right? Here we have from terrorist to preacher of the gospel. We have a, a, <coughs> a guy who hangs out in the shadows, seeks letters to capture and kill people. All of a sudden, what is he doing? Now he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. What a transformation. This basically, God picks the worst guy, the worst guy to do the best things to give us hope. I, I mean, aren't you glad that God picks the worst guy, Jim? I, I singled you out for that reason. <laughs> I, I, aren't you glad God picks the worst guy, Verla, lady? God picks the worst to say the best things through and do his best work from terrorist to apostle. What a transformation. Verse 2. That was just verse 1. There's more good stuff, right? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Jesus is the only Savior. The idea of the historicity of the Bible that you hold in your hands is the oldest of all religions on the planet. If you want to call it a religion, no, it's a movement. 
everything else from Islam on down came far after the, created, the creator creating everything. And here we have prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. Look at this, 700 years before Jesus was born, and, and that old Italian prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus. 700 B.C., and we use the B.C. term for before Christ. In A.D., Anno Domini means the year of our Lord. Our actual calendar is named after the biblical God, is, is designed after the biblical God. 700 B.C., Michael, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrath, uh, who are too little to be among the sons of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. 400 years before Jesus, Malachi 3, 1 again, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Uh, I read that already. Uh, 1,000 B.C., in Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers surround me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. In fact, if you want to read all of Psalm chapter 22, it'll blow your mind as you look at what happened the day Jesus was crucified, written by four uh, biblical accounts and also uh, about 16 extra biblical accounts about the crucifixion in the life of Jesus. In 1000 B.C., again, Psalm chapter 22 and verse 1, a thousand years before my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did Jesus say on the cross? 1000 B.C. in Psalm 16, verse 10, the Bible says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Our actual life that we have today in living is a following of, of God, a following of Jesus, who was God's idea before creation. Hebrews says that Jesus was always the plan if I can summarize the L. Larry Ellis way. God didn't look at your sin and my sin, friend, and say, oops, I better do something about their hedonism. I better do something about their wickedness. I'm going to come and offer my life as a sacrifice to show them my love. No. Jesus was always the plan. Jesus is not a band-aid. He is the thinking of a God that created everything. Verse 4. We're going fast, aren't we? And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus was seen by more than 500 people at one time after his resurrection. He was witnessed by the disciples and uh, some women watched him ascend to heaven as they're all standing there. When, when people die on this earth, we memorialize them, don't we? we? We put up a headstone or a monument. And, and when someone dies, we, we memorialize their grave. And this is true in Seattle with Bruce Lee, right? And Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain. They are in our region and we, they've been memorialized. There's little uh, things to show that they have lived and that they died. And when a re religious leader dies, their grave is enshrined. It, it really is enshrined. There are four religions in the world based on a person, not just a system of ideas. So I want to separate that first, but there are four major religions based on a person, not a system of ideas. The first one is Judaism. It's based on Abraham. And today, if you went to visited Hebron, you would see in a tremendous tribute, a memorial, a worship site built over his dead, entombed body. Uh, similarly, Buddhism, uh, you would see Buddha is buried in India, and in over his tomb, there's been erected an enormous place of worship where people pilgrimage every year. Um, it, it's quite a thing, and quite disgusting as dead children and bodies are put in the river. I'm sure you've seen this stuff on television, right? It's, it's actually a, a terrible what, 
what's, uh, it's just sick. Anyway, um, Islam was founded by Muhammad, right? And who's buried in Medina. And his grave is marked with an enormous uh, location of worship, that this is where Muhammad lies. And if you look at Abraham's grave, you'll find Abraham in it. You'll find it there. If you look for uh, Muhammad's grave, you'll find it. He's still laying there. If you look for Buddha's grave, you will find it. But if you go to Harry Krishna's grave, he's still laying there. He was buried. Joseph Smith is still buried. Jimi Hendrix is still buried. Kurt Cobain is still buried. Uh, Bruce Lee, they're all still buried. They've been memorialized in their still graves. But what's curious about Jesus is that his tomb is not only not enshrined, it's not really known. I mean, no one has any idea where the most famous person in the history of the planet, the most famous person in the history of the planet, where over three and a half billion people say they believe in Jesus, that's over half the world say or attribute themselves to being a Christian. Nobody knows where he's buried. It's because he rose from the grave. Those that, that visit the tomb, they just visit a museum. Nobody knows. And Paul, the same author that writes in 1 Corinthians, that because Christ has risen from the grave, you and I are going to live forever. That there is a hope beyond this life, friends. I'm not living for Jesus just for right now, although I am so grateful for the benefits. I am so grateful for his blessing and his love and his power. I'm so grateful for his guidance and the peace that he gives in the middle of the storms. I'm so grateful for the love that he shows me in spite of the fact that I'm not always loving. I'm so grateful for the grace that he gives. When I'm not that graceful, I am so grateful for a saving God in this life right here now. But let me tell you something more. I am more grateful that I have an eternal home with Jesus in heaven. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen to me. I'm not just going to be in the grave and die and be no more. I'm going to live with Christ Jesus. That's what the hope and promise of the word of God is and that's why my confidence is right there. That's good preaching, Pastor. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I jest. Romans 1 and verse 5. We're getting there. You got, I got a few more minutes, right? Though we have received grace and apostleship, we already talked about his apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ. God has given us grace through Jesus. Grace is God's invitation. Grace is an extension of his mercy, the mercy of God, when we are found guilty in our sin, the scripture that I so love, Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by your works, effort, power, strength, ability to have anything or do anything. And he says this, and when we're found guilty, we have God's grace and not just any grace. Not just the grace Jesse gives me if, if I park behind him in our driveway. Or if he doesn't take out the trash, and I already asked. He takes out the trash every time. That's not a thing. I just Illustration, right? Illustration. Grace, grace, grace. Not just grace this way, but God's grace. I mean, we're barreling all of us down, down a hill on a highway, on a, on, a, on a steep hill with a cliff at the bottom. And we have no brakes and, and an uncontrolled drop toward destruction. And sin so captivates us that we, we find ourselves weaving and, and trying to slow the pace of our descent. Addictions and all kinds of other things that, that give us temporary satisfaction. We drive erratically. To slow the pace because we're in this deep dive. We have no hope. We're substituting all kinds of things and attempted turns with addictions and false hopes and detours just to slow the acceleration. But, but when God says, I am your creator and I have a plan for you, you know, the word grace is sort of become cliche today. We say grace so much in reference to God that maybe the familiarity, as Shakespeare says, has really bred contempt. It's because of the God's grace that, that, that I recognize that I on my own can do nothing, and that I must have him. 
Grace is our only hope for salvation and life. And in the eternity to come, grace is the, the intervention of you. Because you're rotten. <laughs> I'm rotten. Grace intervenes. Grace is, grace is the avenue that takes us away from the highway to hell. I don't care what ACDC says. Grace is not a fluffy word. Grace is an offensive word. Grace is not this, this thing that we've kind of pandered to and it says, oh, I can do whatever I want and be how because God's grace is sufficient. No, friends, grace offends. Grace is offensive. It offends the very religious person because it, it pays the worker that started at 6 a.m. the same as the guy who didn't leave the shop till an hour before it closed. It offends because righteousness is not obtained by keeping the law or being good enough. It, it offends religious people because it is offered to everyone whether they behave correctly or not. Grace offends those that sit on the fence of their faith, the Christmas and Easter attenders, the, the ones that love the, the nativity scenes and the Easter lilies um, of the church, those who like to be around the fire but never in the fire, the ones that, that, that like to be around God's people for 29 or 39 years but won't lead someone, couldn't lead someone to Christ if, if they were called to do so, the ones that carry a Bible to church but never look at it the rest of the week. Grace offends them because Jesus says, I know you carried your big Bible, but I never knew you. Grace offends them because they believe that to be a Christian simply means to confess Jesus without forsaking the world. Grace offends the sinner, the pagan, the lost one, the one that's following other religions or their own religion called atheism with all of its doctrines and thoughts that they created on their own because it confronts the deepest need for forgiveness and acceptance. The grace of God is an affront to every concept that counterfeits relationship with Jesus. Grace offends the sin-filled with a call to not only accept Jesus, but to repent of sin and accept the grace of God through the love of God demonstrated through the sacrifice of Jesus. Make no mistake, friends. The grace of God offends every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Grace offends the sin-filled because it is baffling to conceptualize a creator extending such love to those who despise him so much. Grace offends me, and yes, I use the word offense in this way. When I, I find myself distracted by the cares of the world, that, that God's grace is all up in my business. He reminds me of how good he is and no matter how pathetic and polluted and gross that I have been, when I allow my pride to run wild, God's grace is still there. When, 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 when I do me and I reject the conviction of his spirit, when I when I'm watch that thing or when I run amok with my junk, God overwhelms me with his grace. Friends, God's grace is bigger than what you're facing. God's grace is bigger than that foul thought that you have in your mind. God's grace is bigger than those words you wish you would have not said or just hit send. God's grace offends your sin. It's an affront to your iniquity. It is a counterbalance to what you think is the worst. There's nothing that Satan can throw at you there's nothing in that person in your mirror at home that can do that thing that grace will not offend. You can't do something so badly that grace is not right there. God's grace is bigger than your lust. God's grace is bigger than your pride. He's bigger than your addiction. Offensive to all you can manufacture, God's grace is right there. His grace is more than overwhelming. It assumes uh, everything that you are and still cares to give you grace. It consumes your battlefield. Grace marches over every enemy that you could possibly encounter because where your sin is huge, where your sin is magnified, where it is a massive army of wickedness, where your sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Now, I wouldn't say anything less than amazing when I consider describing God's grace. 
We don't deserve this unearned favor, this, this invitation, not acceptance of your sin. That's not what I mean, but just to receive his grace. It doesn't stop there. We're given his grace for a reason. In verse 5, Paul writes, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name along <coughs> among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus. Now, I know that it's already like 23 after, but I've got to say this thing that Paul writes. The obedience of faith? Wait a minute, isn't that backwards? I mean, most contemporary preaching makes us think that, that faith is our power at our disposal to manipulate whatever we want, but, but right here, the principle of the perfect doctrine of God's word is that faith is an act of obedience. Faith is an act of obedience. Here's how it works. Grace plus obedience equals repentance. If I can steal from chapter 2, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Here's how it works. God tells us who Jesus is, he, what he has done in our behalf, how to live our life to honor God. And, and when he tells us these things by his word, it confronts our rebellion. All of a sudden, we're lost in our own thinking, our nonconformity to God's will. When we feel that rub, we have a choice. We can obey or not. Obedience, then, is faith. To not obey is just our own self. When we choose to obey, that's called faith. Faith is not our mystical power to command the elements of the universe. Although faith empowers when we face difficulties, I understand that. Faith is not ours to exercise over creation, to somehow manipulate matter, biology, or the wind and the waves. Faith is obedience to God. Paul says it right here. That's it. That's what it is. Now, the benefits of being obedient to God are his blessing, his healing, his power, his goodness, right? That's the benefit. We can pray to our loving Father. He intercedes for us and through Jesus, and we can pray according to his will, and he does these amazing things. But in a nutshell, faith is simply obeying God, repenting of all things contrary to his will, and best that he has for us in our lives. And the great reason for it all is what he ends with in, verse, in the verse. He says, for the sake of his name among all the people. When you are living this way in faith, your witness, your story, your rewards, the actions, all the things that come to your life, the words that come out of you, are why? For others. That's the reason. 